the left wingers podcast a brand new podcast hosted by lauren ross and me brandon today's episode is looking at lgbtq rights in modern britain and we are lucky enough to be joined by mike jackson of the lesbians and gays support the minors group as well as an amazing panel of lgbtq activists elsie greenwood and jason parkinson but just before we go to our panel we're going to have a quick look at some recent history of lgbtq rights in the uk As a community, we can never take for granted the rights that we enjoy today. The struggles that those that came before us may seem like a lifetime ago, but some of these rights were only won a matter of years ago. The progress that's been made, even from the year 2000, has been astronomical. Since then, LGBT people have won the right to serve in the military. The age of consent has been brought in line with that of heterosexual sex, again in the year 2000. The year 2005 saw the introduction of civil partnerships, right to change gender, and for same-sex couples to adopt a child. In 2009, two women could be named as parents on the birth certificate of a child conceived through IVF, and the same for two men in the case of a surrogate pregnancy in 2010. Less than three years ago, the Alan Turing Law was passed as part of the Policing and Crime Act 2017, offering an automatic pardon to men convicted of homosexual acts that are no longer considered a criminal offence. Unfortunately, there have been some setbacks too such as when Section 28 was introduced in 1988 by Margaret Thatcher's Conservative government, effectively banning schools from teaching about same-sex relationships. And even now, the UK government is dragging its feet when it comes to placing a well-overdue ban on gay conversion therapy and updating the GRE, which is in severe need of reform. So that was a brief history of the topic. Now it's time to turn our attention to our guest, Mike. Thank you for joining us today. You're welcome. Nice to meet you. So just to kick it off a bit, for listeners who aren't aware of what LGSM are, would you be able to give us a brief history of the group and tell us what you guys achieved? Yep. Okay, so the acronym stands for Lesbians and Gays Support the Miners. It was a group that was formed in response to the great British miners strike, 1984-85, that was kicked off by Margaret Thatcher. Basically, the government sequestered the funds of the union in an attempt to starve the miners back to work because it meant they couldn't get hands on their own strike pay. This is their money that they paid into their union and and the government just seized their assets. So the miners put out a call around the world for anybody who supported them. Instead of giving the money to the union, which would be pointless because it would get frozen, instead to, f- to twin with individual mining communities throughout the British coal fields. And me and Mark Ashton, uh, basically just before the 1984 uh, Gay Pride March, I bumped into Mark and he said, oh, what about collecting for the miners on the Pride March? I said, yeah, good idea. He brought the buckets and that kick-started Lessons of Gay Sport and the Miners into being. And there'd never been really uh, such an assertive presence of LGBT people uh, in an industrial dispute as as much as there was through that. And incidentally, you know, it was lesbians and gays that the consciousness and the history has changed enormously in the last uh, 36 years. So 
obviously now we refer to the LGBT plus community, but it was different then. I'll never forget her getting elected into government in 19, May 1979. And she stood jubilant on the steps of Downing Street, reading that piece from St. Francis of Assisi, where there was disharmony, I will bring unity and all that kind of stuff. And I remember my jaw dropping thinking, what, you? Yeah. And of course, she proved to completely wreck the country, uh, to divide the country. Uh, and she was a very hateful person. Prior to getting elected, she was also uh, the Tory education minister before that in the 70s. And she implemented the withdrawal of free school milk. Uh, which had been introduced to, to ensure that the poorest children in the country whose parents were really struggling at least got some nutritious milk every day. Later, she self-styled herself as a mother of the nation. Uh, I've never met a mother who deliberately withdraws milk from her children like that before. Mm. So great mother she turned out to be. You're the prime consultant for the, the Pride film um, and for the Pride movie scriptwriter. So we'd like to know uh, what was that process like for you? Okay, well, if I take you back uh, for 35 years, after the strike sadly ended, we were defeated. Because I'd been secretary of the group throughout its existence, I was a man who knew people's all kinds of things, your know, names and addresses, people, events, uh, letters, etc. Um, I was approached by several kind of writers or producers from theatre, television, radio, with a view to them, you know, doing something about this extraordinary thing that had happened. And I met all these people and not one single one of them came to anything. And then the years progressed. Of course, 30 odd years is a long time. People have died both in the South Wales community and uh, within LGSM. And I was quite prepared to kind of go to my deathbed thinking, you know, this story will never, ever get told. Uh, we did have an archive. Well, we still have an archive in the People's History Museum. But that's a bit chicken and egg, because if you don't know about the history in the first place, why would you go looking for an archive about it? Uh, and then in February 2011, I got a telephone call from uh, Stephen Beresford, who turned out to be the scriptwriter for Pride, saying he wanted to do a movie about what we'd achieved. Uh, I agreed to meet him, but to be honest, I was a little bit lackadaisical because since everything else had fallen by the wayside, I had no reason to think this one would happen, uh, but it did, as you can see. When Stephen first tried to contact us, He'd already seen a video, an amateur video that we made in 1985-86 called All Out Dancing in Delice. And of course, in this, he sees all of us. He sees me, he sees Mark, he sees Ray and Reggie, the name characters from the movie and Gethin. Uh, but there's no caption as to the faces that appear. So he was really frustrated that at the end of this 24-minute video, all he saw was a list of names, but he couldn't reference him to the actual people who'd spoken. So he then thought, I think the internet was just developing, well, he, he, the internet was around. And he thought, well, I'll try Googling one of these. Well, forget Mike Jackson, it's a pretty common name, that one. <laughs> you get a certain American pop singer who comes up uh, more before my name. I'll try Reginald Blenner Hassett. 
and he struck gold. There's only one Reginald Blenner Hassett on the whole of Facebook globally. Wow. <laughs> well, he got on, in contact with Reggie and Reggie said to Stephen, really, Mike's your man. He, that's the man you need to speak to because he was secretary. And that's how it all started. Well, thank goodness it did. Because um, otherwise, well, I, I wouldn't have heard, have heard about the story. And I'm sure a lot of other young people wouldn't have known the story of LGSM. That's the point. How it came about was there was another miners' dispute, not as big as the 84 85 strike, in 1992 93, eight years later. And Stephen had a, a boyfriend at the time who was older than him, and they were watching the evening news. Now, Stephen's quite a posh boy. He's from quite a middle-class background. And the boyfriend said to, to Stephen, we ought to get behind the striking miners. And Stephen said, why on earth should we support coal miners? And the older man said, do you not know about LGSM? He said, what are you talking about? And he then explained what had happened in 84, 85. Stephen did not believe it. He thought it was a a gay myth that had sprung up and the boyfriend said well it's true it's real it happened now Stephen was very curious then he couldn't help himself he had to try and find out and he said it was hard to find out about this to verify whether it's true uh, but he did eventually find out and he just said why as a fairly intelligent out proud gay man do I not know about this this is such an important part of British LGBT politics someone should make a movie about that one day and then 20 years later he did and we're lucky enough that now um into the curriculum they're just starting to bring lgbt education and lgbt history into it uh, but that's something that i think we're going to discuss later uh, in the episode do you feel like you were accurately portrayed by joe gilgan in the film and what aspect of your character do you think he portrayed best Okay. <laughs> it's quite understandable people ask me that question. Any of us who were portrayed in the movie, how do you feel like you were portrayed? But actually, when you look at that, for you to go around the world wondering how you come across to other people, you'd have to have quite a damaged personality, I think. So really, the best measure of, of whether he's portrayed my personality is what my friends and family think. And they all just laugh. They said, my God, he's got you off to a T. So, you know... Good looking lad as well. I quite appreciate that. <laughs> uh, it's a bit, a little bit disturbed that every other time I've ever seen him acting, he's playing this completely mad role. Uh, so <laughs> make of you will what you want about that. <laughs> so those of us who've seen the movie Pride, and if you haven't, I recommend everyone watches it because it's amazing. We'll have seen LGSM take a trip to Wales to visit the miners. And it was quite tense to watch as a viewer that kind of first meeting would you mind expanding a bit about what that was like and how you were received well Lauren it you know the movie's a movie Stephen made it very very clear to all of us from the outset that he wasn't going to make a documentary that there would be fictitious elements to it fictitious events fictitious characters and that's fictitious the odd thing is how we were actually received on that very first visit. I don't think anybody would believe what had happened was that I'd written a letter to Hefina Hedden, who was secretary of her support group down in Wales. And 
they'd had a discussion about it. There were about 50 people at their meeting. They discussed sexuality, which they'd never done before. It was all a bit novel for them. And the majority of them said, well, we should invite them, just us, uh, just as much as we would treat anybody else uh, down to stay with us, to meet us. Uh, we'd like to meet them. And there were one or two people, a very small number of people who were not comfortable about it. I don't know why, maybe they were religious, who knows. And basically it was agreed that those people would stay away and we would be invited down. And in fact, when we got there, uh, unlike the movie, there were 27 of us. It's a huge number of people. All the striking mining communities throughout Britain would periodically hold these support weekends so that the people who've been working hard to support them, raising money and collecting food and clothing and so forth, could actually go and visit them in their community, see what was going on, and also to get some kind of truth, because of course the, you, you don't get truth from the British media today any more than you did back then, especially when there's a big dispute going on. I mean, the BBC uh, were appalling during the, the dispute. So it was a good way of face-to-face communication so we arrived there on the Friday on the Saturday there was a big uh, event put put on uh, at the miners welfare hall we weren't the only supporters that weekend although we were the biggest group uh, there were print workers uh, from Fleet Street there there were members of Nalgo the predecessor to uh, Unison there as well and there was music and concert and everything they did ask one of us to speak and put, put a guy who's not named in the movie, poor old Andy Den, we was forced upon the stage to speak. But when we first arrived at the Miners' Welfare, it was packed. As we walked into the concert hall, there were two or three hundred people in there already gathered, different generations, there were kids running around, there were grandmas and granddads. When we walked in, quite conspicuous, 27 young lesbians and gays from London, we were a bit kind of like, it stood out a bit. The whole tenor of the conversations dropped and that was a really tense second or two because that was obviously a response to our presence. And then somebody started clapping and the whole room stood up and gave us a standing ovation. And at that point, every hair stood up on my body and I'm sure everybody else's. And we just could not believe this. Here we are, they only know two things about us. One, we're queer. Two, we support their strike. They didn't know anything else at that stage. And for them to give us that applause was just so significant. It was so unexpected. And um, certainly you knew that this was historic. Who'd have expected a bunch of Welsh coal miners giving applause to a lesbian and gay group. That was unheard of, it was fantastic. So in fact, we didn't experience any animosity. And after X gallons of lager had been drunk, later that evening, we were the best of mates. <laughs> in the film, they also portray the media's response to finding out about LGSM's involvement with the Welsh community. How accurate was that? And uh, what was it like for you at the time? actually, if it was real, reading those newspapers and what was said in the media? Uh, well, the media were just appalling then. Certainly in, t in terms of LGBT rights, we didn't have any rights, in fact. We had uh, a raid on gays who were bookshop just about when the miners' strike started in 1984. 
uh, and that was a customers and excise raiding gazer were bookshop uh, on the grounds that they were selling pornographic literature. Now, this isn't a porn store, get gazer word, it's a proper uh, bookshop. And to give you a, an example of how ludicrous this was, they actually confiscated books by people like James Baldwin uh, and Christopher Isherwood, who were mainstream international best-selling authors. But that's typical of the state harassment we were getting. It doesn't matter that there was no uh, judicial outcome from that. There was no prosecution or anything. What they succeeded in doing was disrupting the bookstop, confiscating thousands and thousands of pounds worth of stock and forcing the LGBT community to financially rally around to support gays and word. So just because, and that's very much the same with Clause 28 as well, Section 28. There was never a single attempt at a prosecution with Section 28. They're much cleverer than that because they can implement a law without actually enacting that law because it frightens people and it causes all us to spend an enormous amount of time fighting that, that thing. Although in retrospect, I think the Tories shot themselves in the foot with uh, Section 28 because I think the public mood then was swinging away from the kind of previously rampant homophobia and starting to acknowledge lesbians and gays having some rights. And so actually I think uh, Section 28 did us a favour at the end of the day because actually it rallied the non-LGBT community to us in solidarity. I didn't know about the um, actual reception that you got uh, when you first went to the Welsh community. And I like how it's portrayed in the film, but actually the way that you've recounted the story of what happened is perhaps to me, maybe the better story. I think that's, that's, that, that's a better story for me. I think now we're going to move to a wider panel discussion because you start touching on things like Section 28. I'm sure that you've got opinions about the LGBT movement at large and how it is today. Okay, so now we're going to open up the discussion to our amazing panellists. Would you like to introduce yourselves? Hi, my name's Elsie. I'm co-chair of LGBT Labour Scotland. My pronouns are she, her. I'm Jason and my pronouns are he, him. Moving to a more political discussion than we've previously had, we're going to go to Mike first. Why is the relationship between the LGBTQ and the Labour movement so important? Gosh, that's such a big question. (laughs) Can I just go back before I try and answer that question? The Labour movement, when I was growing up in the 60s and 70s, was full of racism sexism and homophobia you know indeed kind of when we formed lesbians against support the minors that was the backdrop and that's why you know we could have joined any one of a number of support groups supporting the striking minors uh, as individual gay people out the closet or not out the closet but by coming together as as an lgbt group it was we felt a lot stronger uh, and able to kind of deal with any potential homophobia. And to be honest, you know, when we went down to South Wales that first time, I was expecting it, you know, these are coal miners, they, 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 you know, they're not at the zeitgeist of, uh, you know, gender politics or the politics of sexuality. And we were used to, as young LGBT activists, challenging homophobia, wherever we felt it. And certainly people like the majority of us in LGSM, we were socialists, 
left wing anyway. And so we were part of the labor movement as we, as far as we were concerned. So any homophobic member of the labor movement who didn't want us to be in the labor movement, tough. It's our movement too. And we were going to assert ourselves. You know, and one of the tropes that used to go around then was working class men aren't homosexual. Homosexuals are public school, upper class people. And any working class men uh, that kind of go that way have been tainted by the the British aristocracy. Utter, utter nonsense. <laughs> we knew we were working class, gay, and members of the labor movement, and we were going to assert ourselves on that one. And of course, the movement is stronger if it's not divided. Hence, fighting that sexism, racism, and homophobia in the labor movement has made a stronger labor movement now, in the sense of, of, of that its diversity. We're a weaker labor movement politically because of factorism and the anti-trade union legislation that ties the unions in knots. Uh, but now I think it's great and we're seeing LGBT activists popping up within the labor movement all over the place and they're fantastic fighters for the cause yeah because there's a double oppression isn't there at least you know one of class and the other of your your sexuality and then there's people of color there's women you know and these I think people who've got more than one form of oppression if they manage to survive it often make the best fighters of all understandably really it's obvious that you will Elsie do you want to jump in there yeah sure I think for me my self-discovery as being LGBT and my like start of being in the Labour Party kind of came hand in hand so I remember I came out a lot earlier to Labour friends than I ever did school friends I know I think I started going to events when I was about 15 16 and I actually felt comfortable just being myself because of LGBT caucus and because the Labour Party at the time definitely felt like uh, it was very insular, like we had the views that we wanted the rest of society to have in a way, that like we were all very liberal and it was just fine to be who you were. So I think that for me, the Labour movement has always just been a real safe space for me. Um, my first pride was with friends who I'd met through the Labour Party. And obviously a lot of what I've done in the Labour Party has been as my capacity as co-chair of LGBT Labour or LGBT officer for my Labour students group. So... Yeah, I think I wouldn't actually be as involved in the Labour Party if I wasn't LGBT in the same way. I don't think I would be as proudly LGBT if I wasn't a member of the Labour Party. Being LGBT and being part of the Labour movement, the two parts of my identity. And um, the reason why I like the film Pride so much is because it represented the bringing together of two parts of my identity. And I feel like that's why that story in particular resonates with me. And as Mike said, some of the more active people in the labour movement are actually LGBT people. And um, the safe spaces provided by LGBT people in the party have actually helped me to, similarly as Elsie, come out and um, discover myself and be more open about my sexuality. It's been a really positive experience for me. There we go. Yeah, um, I don't feel like I've got masses to say on that one, but I think um, one thing I have noticed is sort of everybody that, I sort of have that the Labour Party in common with has always been really passionate about whether they're LGBT or not they've been really passionate about positive change for the LGBT community and I think the two have just sort of come hand in hand I sort of I don't really know anyone that's right wing that's as passionate or as caring about LGBT rights. Thank you. Part of the film Pride's story was about how 
AIDS in particular affected the LGBTQ community and how it was portrayed at the time in government messaging. In the same vein, in the late 80s, um, as Mike's mentioned, Dutch government introduced Section 28, part of the Local Government Act, which prohibited the what they called the promotion of the LGBTQ community. Now, Mike says that that um, wasn't actually enforced, but it was actually more the fear of that act that played on people's minds. Do you think that the regressive policies of Thatcher's government still affect the LGBTQ community today? I mean, I, I don't know how relevant it is, but I mean, I was um, at one point campaigning for sort of the use of bathrooms at school for transgender people so I remember I had a massive argument with my head teacher uh, threatened to urinate in his bin because he wouldn't let me use the lad's toilet so there was all sorts around that but after I'd managed to successfully get use of that and stuff um, I'd written a powerpoint presentation that I wanted to do for the staff and for the kids and explain sort of some of the stuff transgender people go through because I thought if they don't know about it, I can't expect them to do the right thing. And it's not particularly that they don't choose to know about it. They just, they haven't been told it. So I'd written all of that and there was a member of staff I approached and asked if it was all right to do that. And if obviously she'd book me an assembly slot or something. And she said, oh, well, we can't under section 28. Now this was only about three years ago. And she still thought that was something that she had to go by. So obviously it wasn't but she actually didn't know that that wasn't like a thing anymore. Um, so the fact that there's staff out there, obviously that's probably rare. I don't think any of the teachers at my school were quite that um, oblivious. But if, if there are staff out there that still think that that's in place, then obviously they are going to be missing vital parts of sex ed and LGBT history out if they think they're not allowed to talk about it. I can't, I can't actually believe that. That you were told that. that wow, that's... I was a royal pain in the ass, so I'm not really surprised that they had that reaction. But um, it it was probably the most fun argument I think I've had. <laughs> Mike, <laughs> one of the impacts of the movie is all these invitations to speak around the place. And I've spoken in about 10 schools so far. And some of these uh, more enlightened schools have got very active LGBT groups. I've been to a couple that have had 40 or 50 of the school kids in the LGBT group. But the one thing that I find out almost in every single school is that there's not one out member of staff. Uh, and I find that uh, it's just so sad that, that you know, society has moved on and yet senior management in these schools, whilst allowing the school kids to form an LGBT group, haven't also thought about their own staff. And, it, and so it's a bit of a nonsense, really. I mean, if, if you're allowing that liberation for the kids and neglecting your own staff at the school, then you're not going to make anywhere near the progress you should be making. And I'm trying to go around saying that I think what should happen in schools is that the senior management team when it's either LGBT History Month or maybe it's uh, the, uh, Pride, they should be sporting LGBT badges and, and so forth. And if that provokes the kids to ask them, are you, sir, are you, miss, uh, LGBT, they either are or they're not. And if they're not, they're allies. So either way, everybody's a winner. So all the staff wear an LGBT badge and that hopefully will provoke the kids into 
you know, asking questions and making it cool to be an ally of LGBT people for those people who are not LGBT. And I think we should be pushing for that in all schools, I really do. And one of the things I think isn't just uh, the, and I think that is often a, a holdback from section 28 being on the statute book, even though it's gone, I think there's still that fear there. But I also think further back still, if you have homophobic parents, if a kid makes an accusation of sexual impropriety against an LGBT teacher, I think the the LGBT teachers will be much more anxious about that kind of happening than, than such an accusation made against an a heterosexual member of staff because we are a minority we know about homophobia um, so I think there's also a reservation about LGBT staff coming out there because they don't feel truly 100% safe and supported if such a, a claim was made against them uh, vexatiously. I think that's a really big thing because I know that obviously section 28 isn't a thing but I don't particularly remember any sex ed which was particularly LGBT inclusive at my school and I think a lot of it is actually due to parents fear over what their kids are going to be taught and I think there's a, a worry that LGBT sex ed is inherently more sexual or inappropriate than perhaps heterosexual sex ed is and I think a lot of that is just because of stereotypes that section 28 perpetuated that we as LGBT people are threats or inherently like a sexualized community and obviously a lot of that's because we were pushed into corners where we only really could meet in clubs and inherently more sexual adult spaces so I think a lot of what we need to do is kind of look at the myths that section 28 perpetuated about our community so that parents feel safer about their kids learning about LGBT sex ed and knowing that it's actually just about keeping your kids safe and healthy and not teaching them some sort of wild and adult things. Yeah. That kind of links into what my next question was going to be about LGBTQ inclusive teaching. Obviously, we've got people with different experiences on this panel. So I was just kind of wondering what you guys, your experience of sex and relationship education was like. Because I know from myself, we, they didn't mention LGBTQ people at all. Um, and you know I, I'm, I'm only 24 so it's not like section 28 was in effect at that point so yeah I was just wondering what you guys what your experiences were like with that at your school. Elsie do you want to pick that straight back up? Honestly I don't feel like I had much education which was LGBT inclusive I mean so I'm 20 now so obviously there was no sort of section 28 going on when I was at school but I remember even just we had a few teachers who were out and I think they got they were hounded with abuse by the students and I think a lot of that was just about the fact that they there was no sort of teaching at our school and even though I don't think we were necessarily a very homophobic school no one was out no teachers were out who didn't receive abuse and the sort of education we got was almost it was minor if there at all and I don't think we got any until we were in high school definitely not in lower school and I think it's something that we need to start teaching from a much younger age but no, I don't think I had a particularly thorough education in terms of LGBT history at all. Maybe a little bit for the kind of PSHE side of things. But. I know from my experience, I, I can't remember having um, 
even had LGBT people mentioned at my school, whether it be teachers or other members of staff. And I found it heartening going back to my old school for an open day um, and seeing that they had at least set up an LGBT group, which is something that I think would have made a big difference to me. I wouldn't have necessarily joined that group, but to have known that it existed would have helped me uh, so much because it would have made me realise that there were other people like me. Um, in fact, the only other person who I know came, who came out at secondary school um, were, was badly beaten up uh, because of it. So my, my experience of an LGBT inclusive education just didn't really exist. And this is only uh, a few years ago. Um, I wonder if anybody else had a similar experience. Jason, do you want to come in? I mean, just from a slightly different perspective, I have been working for the local authority for the last couple of years. And part of that was sort of like family support worker stuff. And another part of it was like mediation. And I'd been called in at one point, obviously I can't say which school it was, but there was a Catholic school that I was asked to go and do some mediation in um, because there was a teacher who had come out. And I think, I don't know if she'd like come out to a lot of students, but I think she'd come out to members of staff. A few girls had like picked up on it and heard about it or something. Um, and they'd been sneaking in her um, classroom on a morning and writing homophobic abuse all over the uh, whiteboard and things. So they'd asked me if I'd go in and sort of do a bit of mediation between the teacher and the kids. And obviously I sat down with the kids, did a bit of an LGBT sort of training thing for them. And they were asked to then um, do like an assembly for the rest of the school or something. But obviously I, I know there's often different perspectives in religious schools and things um, and people have different attitudes towards LGBT people there but I think a lot of the reason why that happened was a lack of education both maybe with staff on how to deal with that and for the kids because I know I'd, I'd been doing some work um, sort of like training that I got asked to deliver to um, social work teams, uh, kids home staff on LGBT um, and I'd show up in sort of within a couple of sentences they're all like open mouthed and they didn't they hadn't heard of all these things they didn't know what I was talking about um, and I just thought it was astonishing because they don't they don't seem to have that knowledge at all um, and I think even Obviously, I've not actually seen the way Mesma Cobernados or anyone deliver their training, but I sort of get the impression from what I heard off those staff that they leave a lot out. And it's a lot of the stuff that's quite, to most people, it could be like sort of embarrassing to talk about or whatever. But if people don't know about it, they can't be expected to be inclusive and sort of know how to support people. Mike, do you have anything to say on this? Um, well, going back to the, those school visits I made, the one that was the most astonishing for me was I went to speak in a school in South London uh, and they were showing the movie and I arranged to uh, arrive just before the end of the movie. And I walked in at the back of the hall, the kids were all looking forward at the screen. And I could judge from behind that some of these kids were under 15 years old. Now, all the other schools I've spoken at uh, I'd always met year six and above because I don't know whether you realise, but Pride's got a 15 rating, which is stupid, but it has. And so I said to the teacher, I said, hey, do you know this movie's got a 15 
racing. And the teacher looked at me, smiled and quite proudly said, yep. And all the under 15 year old kids here, we have got written consent from the parents. That's good, isn't it? Wait till the next bit. When I got to the front and looked out to, I would say easily 50 to 60 uh, kids, I would say that half of those kids were Muslim kids. So counter to all that Islamophobic nonsense that we're here and, and counter to what happened in Birmingham, these are Muslim parents having no problem whatsoever letting their very young children watch Pride the movie as an LGBT movie. I thought that was just sensational. Well done that school, how brave of them. Uh, and what results it's paid off. How lovely to think that those kind of Muslim LGBT kids in that school have got such great support both at school and at home. Wonderful stuff. And that was a state school, by the way. To be honest, I'd go as far as saying that all schools should show it. I think it should be part of the curriculum because it's such an important thing of history, just not just for our country, but from people that are considered marginalized so i think it's so important uh, just to kind of wrap things up for our last question really before we finish we want to talk about the gender recognition act and specifically the future of trans rights in the uk so under the may government there were plans to amend the gender recognition act to allow trans people to change their birth certificates without a medical diagnosis however a leak to the Sunday Times stated that ministers have ditched the plans and that safeguards will be put in place to protect safe spaces for women instead. With this in mind, what did the original amendments to the Gender Recognition Act mean to you, our panel? And how can we fight to protect and further trans rights when our government is threatening them? Elsie, I'm going to come to you first because you've been very vocal about this. So obviously, I think... The GRA initially was a radical piece of legislation and it obviously did a great deal for the trans community but now it just needs an update as times have changed and I think our, the best thing we can do and some work that we've been doing at LGBT Lib Scotland is just making short videos or explanations that just simplifies what the reforms to the GRA are. They're not complicated, they're not scary, they're not going to infringe on the Equalities Act, they're just small like common sense reforms that are going to make trans people's lives easier and less complicated and less painful. So I think our work has just been basically trying to educate people on what these reforms mean. Basically myth busting, things that are said about bathrooms, things that are said about the Equality Act, things that are said about um, women's spaces like refuges and stuff. Um, so we've just been saying like, look, there have been trans people in women's bathrooms for years that always has been there's been trans women in your refuges for years and all this is is making them not have to prove to countless doctors that they are trans not have to prove that they are living as a certain gender and so forth so i think it's just try to educate people simplify it anybody else want to chip in there jason yeah um i think it's sort of it's something that's been really like underappreciated in that I mean, I, I'm not sure why there's any issue with anything that we want changing, uh, to be honest. I mean, um, so that I've, I think I've been living as male for about six years now. Um, and I hardly think anyone is going to look at me and think that I'm female, to be honest. But um, 
it's like say when I wanted my passport done um, I had to get two doctor's notes um, and evidence that I'd been diagnosed gender dysphoria and stuff, which was actually harder for me because I'm still not at like a gender identity clinic I'm still on a waiting list um, and it's just those little tiny things like paying £25 for a doctor's note just to get a letter M printed on a passport um, and I, I just think it, it's not something that people sort of recognise how brilliant it is and how much it is needed because just having a birth certificate reprinted for me would save me having to take in a deed poll with my birth certificate to every like meeting or interview or whatever I need that for because um, then instantly you've had to out yourself and like you've you go to an interview, you've been there five minutes before you had to say, oh, well, uh, yeah, that was my name before, but that's it now and this is why. And it's, yeah, it's not great. Thank you for sharing that. Mike, do you have anything just to round off the question? Uh, no, I, I agree completely with what Lauren uh, and, and, and Jason have, have, have said. I mean, the, the way the trans community has been uh, misrepresented and attacked is, is just awful really I mean it, and it very much reminds me of LG and B people were 30 years ago uh, and the trans people are kind of in that position now so you know all power to, to the trans community to kind of get proper uh, recognition and, and dignity and, and, and legal support we're going to have to wrap it up there, but thank you very much to Mike, Jason and Elsie for coming on today. If you liked this episode, you can follow us on Spotify at Left Wingers and on Twitter at Left underscore Wingers. Be sure to turn on notifications to be the first to know when a new episode is released. You can also find the links to our Spotify and Twitter in the description. Stay safe and we'll see you soon.